Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes a young professional early in their career talking to an expert for academic and industry insights. At some point, we turn the tables around where the expert asks the young professional about their agonies, dreams and aspirations about their field. In today's podcast, we have the pleasure and honor to have with us Dr. Athena Kustenis, who is the Director of Research at the French National Center for Scientific Research at Lesia, at the Paris Observatory at Mendon. The young professional is Matina Giulidou, a senior professional staff physicist at the Applied Physics Laboratory and the Space Exploration Sector of the John Hopkins University. Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Martina Giulidou. I'm from the Applied Physics Lab, Johns Hopkins University. And today we have uh, uh, with us uh, Dr. Athena Kustenis. Uh, she's a planetologist and a director of um, research exceptional class at the Paris Moudon Observatory. I'm not sure about my French accent over there. Um, she, she has had many, many awards. Most recently, uh, she was named uh, to the rank of a Knight of the National Order of the Legion of Honor. So first things first, I would like Dr. Kustenis to tell me a little bit what a planetologist does and what are your responsibilities at the, as a director of research exceptional class at the Paris Observatory? Yes, hi, Martina. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Um, very, uh, very happy to be here with you today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. So, um, so I have to start by saying that I'm basically an astrophysicist and I insist on the physicist uh, more than just saying an astronomer because believe it or not, uh, it's true. Some people still today confuse astronomy with astrology. Astrology. Like, oh, good. <laughs> oh, can you tell me my fortune now? You know, when I say I'm an astronomer. Okay. So then my specialty indeed is studying the objects in our solar system and also what we call the exoplanets, which are mm -hmm. the planets outside our solar system. Um, so what do I do? Okay. So I think uh, a little bit that like what you did or you're doing, Matina, I started out as a modeler. Mm -hmm. um, who likes to predict a little bit what we could find in the solar system, uh, and but also work uh, hands-on with um, uh, space missions and instruments to explore these worlds. And in particular, um, I like to work with uh, the giant planets in our solar system, that is, you know, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and especially their satellites, those bodies that I find very intriguing um, in the outer solar system. So I, I build my models and then I like to test them, which is why I became a planetologist because you can send space missions out there in the solar system. And for the time we cannot do that for stars and galaxies. So my main goal is um, to retrieve uh, a better understanding of what the celestial bodies are and what they're made of. And so I contribute, like I said, to, to instruments, but also space mission architectures from building from, from the concept actually, uh, building and launching and then exploiting. Um, so 
you know, just a fun thing. I started with the Voyager missions um, many years after they did their flybys in, in the Saturnian system. Uh, then I worked with ground-based campaigns in, in nice telescopes in Hawaii, in Chile, Canary Islands. Um, and then I started building missions. Um, so I proposed a number of missions to ESA, the European Space Agency, and NASA, and we did studies for those missions. I'm glad to say that some of them are flying or are going to fly. Um, and then I work with ground support uh, campaigns, you know, from the ground to support those missions. So as, as director of research, what I do is I assemble a team of people. Uh, I put in place a project, a research study uh, that I direct and which hopefully leads to um, getting new data and a better understanding of an object or environment, like I said, in the solar system and beyond. Okay, great. Uh, thank you. Um, yes, I went over your webpage, which is actually very impressive. I really like the diving into it. And you have uh, under career, you have the title from a Greek beach to a Titan lakeshore. Um, so first of all, I would like to, uh, I think a lot of us who are abroad took the decision to leave Greece very early <laughs> um, in our, when we were uh, very young. You in particular left Greece when you were only 18 years old. Mm -hmm. I know you also got two degrees so very relevant to each other, English literature <laughs> and astrophysics, and you ended up getting your PhD in astrophysics. Um, I want to know a little bit about your decision to make take that step. And then you already mentioned you're part of missions and you have uh, started working with missions from the beginning, from the concept all the way to the end. And one of these missions is the Cassini. Uh, uh, that uh, went to Saturn, uh, and I know you followed that one from birth to death. Uh, yes. So I would like, first of all, yeah, your decision to leave Greece, and then what that what the Cassino, Cassini mission meant both for the 15-year-old Athena, who was dreaming of becoming an astronomer, and for your later career. Yes, so, so you're combining here two things that, that were like, 25 years apart and more, obviously, mm -hmm. um, and it would take me a lot of time to go through in uh, all detail. So just let me highlight a couple of major mm -hmm. milestones in that in that long period that took me from the the Greek shore to uh, the Titan shore, uh, the Greek beach rather, because that's where I used to spend all my free time in Greece after school. Um, so my father was a, a major general in the Greek Air Force. Uh, for, uh, first, and then he became a, a counselor in the embassy, and we found ourselves in Turkey at some time where we lived for a couple of years and where there was no Greek Lyceum available, mm -hmm. and uh, my brother and I were thrown into a French school um, in, in uh, one before last grade and, and something like that, and we, we had no French, so we, we knew we didn't speak the language, so we had to learn. And I realized that I realized at that time that in that school that I loved sciences, whereas before I was a literature fanatic, I was always with a book in my hands, I would read anything that would come my way. So after getting the baccalaureate, which opens, as you know, the French uh, university doors, because once you get the baccalaureate, you can get into any university you want in France. Um, I left for France, uh, where I studied both physics and English in the beginning. At the same time, in two universities, Pierre Marie Curie, 
um, and by the way, Marie Curie was my idol. You know, I was, mm -hmm. I mean, this is an amazing woman. This is, you know, a scientist that blows your mind what she could do um, in, in that era. Yes, in particular. So for women. Um, and then Sorbonne Nouvelle for uh, the literature. And, and this was actually a condition that was set by my father, who, like many other members in our family, didn't believe at all that astronomer was a real job. Okay, so he said, well, you know, you'll survive doing teaching English literature. So, you know, go to France, but you study English literature and then you can do physics as a hobby. Okay. So he also, by the way, asked uh, that I pass all my exams in both both universities every year in June, and that I re would return to Greece for the whole three month summer period. You know, otherwise, no money. You come back to Greece and that's it. <laughs> well, you know, I like challenges. So that was a challenge, as you can imagine. Um, but, um, you know, um, I think I managed and uh, I got started in two PhDs at the same time. So I started the, the English literature and the, the astrophysics. Uh, but after a while, the French National Research Center offered me a, a permanent position. And they said, well, you know, you're cute, but uh, you got to stop doing two things <laughs> at the same time. You're getting schizophrenic. <laughs> so I had to leave my English literature doctorate for later on. I think I'll pick it up again when I'm like, you know, maybe 90 or something and, and finish it. Um, so when I started working, uh, I was interested in planetology because it seemed close, you know, it's, it's tangible, it's in our neighborhood, and, and it's so relevant to, to the Earth and what we do here. Um, and in particular, uh, I fell in love with a, a largely unknown object at the time that's in the, in the 90s, which is Titan. And Titan was uh, uh, the satellite of Saturn that was only known to us from the Voyager missions at the time. And so I then did my PhD on Titan, and um, I became something of an expert uh, on Titan that placed me uh, on board of the Cassini-Huygens mission, which was being developed at the time in three of the instruments, and allowed me to follow the whole path from its the beginning, from its development, from its you know inception to the end, which, like you said, came in 2017. Oh my God, I cried my eyes out in JPL when, when that mission went. I mean, I was at the launch, you know, it's like yeah, there are babies going out there. Exactly. And <laughs> um, Cape Canaveral, it was, it was amazing. So uh, I was there from the beginning and I helped define the instruments uh, that got us uh, uh, many things. For instance, the main atmospheric properties, temperature, pressure, and uh, density. That was the HASI instrument on the probe. Uh, the beautiful images and the spectra that we got from uh, the DISR instrument on Huygens, and then the spectrometer from the orbiter that was Sears. So it was quite an adventure, and I can see that there is like a connection, you know, going from from Voyager to Cassini-Huygens, and then I'm, I'm now looking outwards to the future. Yes, and I'm going to go into that future right now. I know your Kauai of the Janus camera on ESA's JUICE mission is supposed to launch, I believe, right now. Uh, the plan is 2023. Uh, it's supposed to go to Jupiter, uh, another uh, giant planet after Saturn. But you're, I know you're also very excited about NASA's Dragonfly mission, uh, which is supposed to send a quadcopter uh, to fly around Titan's surface, that's in 2027. Uh, so it goes back to your favorite object, 
in a solar system. So what are the burning questions or the one burning question you would like to see answered by discoveries that will come out of these two missions that are different planets, different objectives? Just out of curiosity, what would um, what do you want to learn? Um, so, you know, every mission you send out, um, it's like any experiment, you learn something and then what you learn above everything else is that there's something else you don't know. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. There are some questions that come on the table that you hadn't even imagined before. I mean, like Titan, you know, getting there, I was, I was in Darmstadt at the ESA control center and I saw the first images coming down and I looked at them and I thought, oh my God, that's Mars, you know, go away. We, nobody expected pebbles and, and riverbeds on Titan and channels and, mm -hmm. and, and lakes and things like that. So even in our wildest imaginations, we hadn't thought about that. So, um, so obviously, you know, after Cassini-Huygens, I thought, um, okay, there are some, some cases where we can do better, both from the instrument side, but also because Cassini was not an orbiter dedicated to Titan. It was an orbiter within the Saturnian system. It didn't orbit Titan. And, and this is an object that you really want to take a close look at. So um, I had suggested at a time a mission that was called T Tandem, and mm -hmm. then it was called TSSM, which was a joint mission with the US, ESA and NASA. And we did a study for a couple of years. And that mission had a high high level, I think, uh, of interest feature in there. It had a balloon that was mm -hmm. you know, the balloon on Titan, the Montgolfier, that was going to go around Titan at the equator and, um, and give us more information about what was in the lower atmosphere, what's on the surface, what is the composition of the, on the surface, what can we discover if we look into the lakes with a lander that we were going to land in the northern lakes and so on. Um, and that mission didn't fly yet, yet, you know, I'm always yeah. saying yet, yet. yet. Um, but I think, you know, Dragonfly, obviously a drone that can move around is, yeah. is, is amazing. It's an amazing, you know, opportunity to go there. Uh, you have to be able to move around on Titan and because it's so muddy, you cannot uh, have a rover there that, yeah. that goes around the road. Um, exactly. And at the same time, there was another mission that was being developed at exactly the same time, two studies in parallel. ESA and NASA had, it, had a plan, and that mission was called EJSM for Europa Jupiter Saturn uh, mission. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I wasn't involved in Jews, obviously, because I was leading, co-leading um, the TSSM mission. But then when TSSM didn't uh, fly, didn't get priority, I found myself uh, leading, co-leading the European uh, part of EJSM, which then became Juice when NASA decided to do the Europa Clipper on their own um, side. So, you know, it's an anecdote that shows you that in our business, in, in the space business, um, there are a lot of things happening. They start jointly. There's a lot of ideas flying together. Then you end up with two missions and actually Juice and Europa Clipper will find themselves at the same time, same time. Yes. back in Jupiter <laughs> in 2030, 2031. And it will be like we have that EJSM mission again, you know. So, so Juice is another one of my babies, and it, it's great to know that it's going to fly next year, uh, April 2023. Hopefully, that's the plan. Yeah, and the Janus camera is uh, one of my preferred um, instruments on board. 
Um, I'd just like to say that um, I'm also involved in the Martian mission, a mission to the Martian moons that is called MMX with the Japanese. Uh, and I'm also involved in Ariel. Ariel is the European Space Agency next exoplanetary mission. It's a space observatory to study exoplanets. So Martina, you can oh, say I'm great. excited about many things. Yes. <laughs> no, no, this is great. I, I had, uh, yeah, I didn't know actually about the Martian one. Okay, that, that's very exciting. Yes, so every you go to every planet and exoplanet right now. Yes, yes, I'm all over the place. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, okay, you have uh, explained to me your path as a scientist, leading a lot of uh, mission studies, you know, leading uh, instruments and missions. Um, but I want to touch uh, on something else. You also have a very impressive career on research uh, management and what we call community service. Uh, you are a member of multiple advisor or chairing even advisory committees and boards. I'm sure you have been in review panels and um, all that stuff. Um, in an interview, you said you have to be at the service of the community, not just yourself. And that it's important for me that besides my science, I can make a difference in the community, which for the record, it's very refreshing to hear from a very successful person that community service is also important. Um, when serving in these committees, how do you or even should you separate your personal scientific preferences from the decision making process? Yeah, um, I, I I actually at some point, you know, thought it would be difficult, but it's not because <clears throat> I, I guess scientists, what we really want is to enhance our understanding, is mm -hmm. to improve, to push ourselves forward in science. So um, I find myself in several committees actually that uh, include parts of things that I didn't know about before. So, so first of all, I have to say that it is a service to the community, but it's also a service to me because I learned learn, so much. Yes, you learn so much. That is, yeah. You know, if you do the same thing again and again. So when they put me, for instance, uh, to chair um, the uh, European Space Agency uh, Human and Robotic Exploration Scientific uh, Committee. Uh, I had to learn about Mars and the moon and the low Earth orbit and ISS and things that I never thought about before because I was this outer solar system person, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then they 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 put me to chair uh, another committee I'm chairing right now, which is planetary protection for COSPAR. And planetary protection is huge; it's enormous. You know, yeah. this is this is this is the policy that tells that people that they cannot go out there anywhere they want and contaminate the environment that they're exploring. And they can also not bring back samples, for instance, to the earth that might contaminate um, our biosphere, which means there's a protocol in, in place for all of these things. You sterilize your spacecraft, and when you bring samples back, there is a whole protocol again with uh, special facilities and special um, treatment uh, that would allow scientists to uh, analyze those samples without contaminating everybody. You know, if there's alien life, for instance, in those samples. Um, so I, I learned things, and, it, and and when you learn things, when when your mind is set on the science, you, you're not biased because you hear of something. Um, that is extraordinary, that is amazing. I go, oh, oh my God, yes, let's do that. And they say, well, you know, are you sure you don't want to go back to Titan? And I say, yeah, obviously I want to go back to Titan, but but this sounds so exciting. So yeah. let's let's go to Wasallis, let's go to Europa, let's go to Mars, let's go here. So yeah, I, I, I think when you really love science, um, 
you do it as a community service, but you do it also a little bit for yourself as a scientist, and then and then you can't be biased. You you just fly with whatever wonderful idea comes along. Right. So it's the involvement in these committees that allow you to broaden your horizons pretty much and be open to other ideas other than your personal up to that point interests. Okay. Yeah. Um Oh yeah, my next question is actually, so I, I was very excited that you are also excited about that stuff. So I'm gonna throw some words here, astrobiology, habitable exoplanets, space colonization, human space exploration. And no, I'm not talking about the Star Trek episode, but about the future of space exploration. Uh, so personally, very often I find myself um, trying to convince people that investing in space exploration and investing in solving our serious problems here at Earth, like climate change, is not an either-or situation. Uh, I know you have also said that we should pay attention to lessons learned from space and keep our planet healthy, but also how space and other planets can be a resource for all of us. Uh, so how can I make my argument more convincing that human space exploration is not just exciting and cool, but also necessary for the humankind and for our own planet? Yeah, um, clearly I learned a lot um, in the past couple of years uh, leading this committee on, on space exploration for, for ESA about what we do on the ISS, the International Space Station, what we're going to learn about um, medical and uh, physical conditions, life sciences, things like that. But I, I like to go back to, to the solar system or forward to the solar system and, and then just say, when you look at other places in the solar system, so in particular searching for habitable conditions, and let me just remind everybody what that means. It mm -hmm. means what you need to survive, okay? What you need to leave if you extrapolate from life on earth, which means looking for water, nutrients, and energy sources, okay? You basically discover that other planets like uh, Mars and Venus could have been habitable sometime in the past. And then you wonder what happened to them? Um, and then you find that they suffered from some disasters like a runaway greenhouse effect on Venus or not enough greenhouse effect leading to atmospheric loss and due to low gravity and lack of tectonic activity as is the case for Mars. And then we think both planets, you know, for instance, Venus and Mars started out like the Earth, you know, with habitable environments, dense atmospheres, liquid water on the surface. But in the case of Venus, for example, the greenhouse effect went out of control due to the increase in temperature as the sun became, you know, brighter, which is a continuing process. I'd like to remind everybody, even if it takes a long time. Um, and increase you know, in the atmospheric content of greenhouse gases, such as the ones that we eject in the Earth's atmosphere when we burn fossil fuels in large volumes. So I tell people, okay, do you know what Venus looks like today? Um, there's a, a very high temperature on the surface. Uh, there's a very high, um, uh, very high pressure on the surface, very high temperature. Uh, the atmosphere is CO2 and sulfuric acid. Uh, would you like to go live there? And they say, oh, no, no. Well, don't turn our Earth into something like that. You know, and look at Mars. It lost all its water, all its atmosphere, because nobody was there to take care of that tenuous atmosphere in the beginning, and nobody was there to protect it from the sun. So protecting our planet, I think, is very important. Um, and 
if we don't have a choice, we're going to have to go to the icy moons in the outer solar system where there's liquid water under the surfaces. And would anybody like to take a chance today to live under the surface somewhere, <laughs> you know, hidden from the sun, no sunlight, no beaches, no nothing. Um, and that strikes, you know, something, an impression on people that we can learn from space. We learn from space, we bring it back here, we have concrete examples of what space can offer to you. And that is, as you said before, beyond inspiration, beyond imagination, beyond dreaming. Yeah. Uh, very, very concrete examples. Yeah, great. More arguments for me. Um, <laughs> Hope so. So the next question has to do. Uh, so you you've had a very successful career, um, and I know a lot of students in Greece they they need to make a decision very early on what to do with their lives. Uh, we have the exams to take us to university. Uh, your father had an interesting idea how English literature would provide you more job security than physics, which if any American would hear that they would laugh out loud. <laughs> they avoid English literature here. Um, or these kind of studies as opposed to sciences. I think they, they find sciences more profitable. Um, but I want to ask you, what would be your advice to young students in Greece that might feel anxious about job security when they explore career path options? I find that the science can take you in all kinds of different directions. Um, do you have any advice? Well, um, yeah, well, I mean, look, um, I'm an example of what people can achieve when they set their minds to it. I mean, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm from a small country, a military family <laughs> and yet you know i managed to make my niche uh, in a big country mm -hmm. and and to to achieve my dreams because I, actually when i was 14 i wanted to be an astronaut but by 15 i had decided i want to be an astronomer okay so <laughs> with everything else um so first of all if you set your mind to it you can you can do it i mean i i i do not see any excuses that would um, have a young person say, no, you know, it's too difficult. I can't manage, I cannot do it. And if you look at the careers of everybody that we look up um, today from astronauts to, you know, scientists to anybody, Nobel prizes, you'll see they all, did, nobody started out with, oh, okay, you know, um, somebody will offer me this job or somebody yeah. will get me through school or somebody will pay for this and will pay for that. I mean. I had to, to work two jobs at the same time to pay my rent when I was in France because it was a very expensive, in Paris, a very expensive city. So, so if you set your mind to it, you can manage. I have, I have absolutely no doubt about it. So never, never give up on your dreams. If you do, um, you know, um, then you, you, you destroy your chances to do something. I mean, yeah. like, for instance, I don't know where you are exactly in your career, Matina, at this point, but uh, what are you heading towards? So I'm, um, I'm actually, um, I'm, I'm not very soon. I will not be considered early career anymore. It's my 10 year mark. <laughs> oh, my God, you look so young. <laughs> after PhD, yes. Um, 
with uh, yeah by NASA standards I'm, I'm not going to be considered their career anymore yeah I'm currently actually lead, leading um, an instrument uh, development for an ENA camera uh, that uh, will um, will look at the, the boundaries of our solar system the heliosphere so it's actually the same camera that is going to be on board of the JUICE mission yeah, nice. uh, the, to, to pretty much see the, the plasma in uh, Jupiter's magnetosphere. So the same type of technique we apply to see the plasma in the, um, in, uh, the outer uh, solar system. So I, I started the same as you as an astrophysicist. I, I started as a modeler. I went into space physics myself because I also wanted something more hands-on, something more applicable. Uh, now I'm building instruments. <laughs> uh, but I think my challenge as opposed to you is that I try to explain to people something that they cannot see, mm, which mm, is uh, yeah. charged particles mm. in space. I, I work with space around planets as opposed to the planet itself. Uh, which I, I would also say that is, uh, I think it's also very important to understand the space, to understand uh, habitability uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, space can be a very dangerous place out there with things you cannot see, but they can really affect uh, life. Um, yeah, so Jupiter's, Jupiter's magnetosphere is the largest object in the solar system, yes. so we can't see it. You can't see it. If only you could take a picture. Actually, that's exactly what the uh, ENA cameras do. They take a picture of magnetospheres, <laughs> of something that you cannot see with your own eyes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's what I do. Um, I'm, I'm very excited. We'll see. It's the first time I'm leading an instrument, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, I hope you'll get to... Uh, leading a mission because when I was leading a next mission, step back, <laughs> yes then 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 it all comes together you know because you cannot have your instrument you have you know a bunch of instruments and like you were asking me before you you have to give everybody a chance so yeah. you have to have a broad view which I'm sure uh, you you'll do just fine with yeah yeah I'm actually very excited yes me uh yeah, mission development is my my next actually my next step. I hope it happens someday. Uh, but yeah, I think for the the students, I would also say you know go go with your gut. If you like what you do, eventually something will happen. My career had a lot of zigzags as well. It wasn't you know I didn't know that I would be where I am right now. I just knew I wanted to do physics. That that's all. So. Yeah, well, zigzags are always helpful in the sense that um, if you just had a straight, you know, easy career, like, you know, my brother, he wanted to be a pilot, he became a pilot, and now he flies, you know, fine. So he didn't have to choose things. Uh, but choosing um, gives you an opportunity to also um, kind of, of make rock solid your decision in the mm -hmm. end, you say, I want to go with that. So, so I, I think it's important for young people also to try different things. Yeah. And mm -hmm. adaptability, I think, is a very important um, oh, yeah. aspect yeah, of, the, of this business anyway. Absolutely. Okay, final question. We ask every, uh, every visitor in our podcast, um, is um, in, in a perfect setting, uh, what would be your favorite place to invite your guests? Who would you invite? What would be served? And what music will be playing in the background? So, you know, anywhere near the sea, 
okay. <laughs> anywhere near the sea with a, a glass of wine yes. good friends and and some of my very best friends are in Greece. So I grew up with them, like Fotini and Lela. And then I would also try to invite my daughter, Calista, if she would come along. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, she's, she's 20 now, so you never know. Uh, but if I could invite someone to the Parea, perhaps in another life, Martina, um, it would have uh, been my, my good friend and mentor, Carl Sagan, whom mm -hmm. I lost so soon. Um, and whom I had a chance to exchange uh, with in, in fabulous discussions on Titan. You know, Carl was a Titan fanatic. He was, he was one of the first people that put Titan on the map for many years. And then unfortunately he passed. He was one of the most true and charismatic people, you know, I've known. And, and he was a lighthouse for many of us young people. He, you know, went out of his way. And this is why today I give conferences and, and public lectures because I think it's important. And I don't know about background music because I always play my music loud. <laughs> but whenever, whenever I need a boost, I play uh, Imagine Dragons Believer. First things first, I'ma say all the words inside my head. I'm fired up and tired of the way that things have been. Oh, From a young age, taking my soak into the masses Writing my poems for the few that look at me Took at me, shook at me, feeling me Singing from heartache, from the pain Taking my message from the veins Speaking my lesson from the brain Seeing the beauty through the... I learned a lot. Um, I hope you have great rest of your career. I'm sure you will keep doing great, discovering more things. Uh, yeah, it was great talking to you. I, I wish the same to you, Martina. And, and just to say, you are also an example to people because maybe you didn't plan where you are today, but if you are where you are and you're happy with it, as you said, the important thing is you get up in the morning and you think, oh, I'm not going to work. You think, oh, I'm going to have fun. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> yes. And so thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you. A huge thank you to Dr. Athena Kustenis and Martina Giulidiu for this podcast, Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence. Mm -hmm.